Welcome to Modern Aikidoist Podcast. My sincere thanks to listeners and those who have liked, subscribed, and commented. Your interest is noticed and deeply appreciated. A short announcement before I get started with today's topic. Today, the Spirit Aikido Online program launched. I put it together to share what I train and teach in my dojo with people all over the world. Since establishing Aikido the Martial Side Facebook group, I've met many martial artists who have become friends, all interested as I have been in making their Aikido more martially sound. It is a path I've been on since I started back in 2004 and have intently focused on since I started teaching more than 10 years ago. This program allows me to share with people who are interested in what I've found and continue to develop. It is more than just sharing videos. It also includes mentoring where I can work with subscribers on troubleshooting and helping integrate the material into their training. I'll leave a link in the description to the trailers and to the store where you can subscribe if you're interested. Now on to today's topic, Aikido's problem about realism. I don't think anyone can dispute that Aikido has a problem in regards to practicing in such a way to prepare someone for real violence. Countless people have commented, many with a great deal of experience in real violence, that the attacks seen in Aikido practice and demonstrations are not realistic. If you train only against unrealistic attacks, then how can you expect to perform correctly when real attacks come at you? Today's podcast is going to dig into this subject and try to find some tangible answers. Until we get a firm understanding of this matter, there will continue to be a huge gap between the Aikido community and the martial arts community. It would be easy for me to go after Shomenuchi and Yokomenuchi alone, and I will address them, but there are far more problems than just these two very stylized attacks, which account for Aikido's reputation as having training problems. But let's start with these two attacks for now. The most common explanation, and I was given this explanation as a young student, is that they are representative of sword attacks because Aikido came from sword combat. Now I believe that this explanation is true. Even though it's true, that doesn't mean they are good representatives for attacks one would likely see in a real fight. For it to be true and accurate, the exact same body movements would exist for a sword cut as it does for a punch. Although there are some similarities, and some important ones in terms of body mechanics, there are significant differences. Significant enough that they really are different attacks. They might come in on the same line, but even minor differences in angles can determine the success or failure in connecting and how effective they are. Let's take a common example, Yokomanuchi. Yokomanuchi is a diagonal cut from high to low as the attacker steps in, attempting to strike with the knife edge of the hand, or tegatana, to the base of the neck or the side of the head. Instructors often say that this is an attack which represents any swinging attack such as a haymaker or roundhouse punch. While it is true that these strikes come in at similar angles, they are quite different. A yokoman strike brings the elbow forward early with the forearm swinging kind of like a sword. A haymaker is led with the fist, not the elbow. This may seem like a mild difference, but it is rather profound. The tangible difference is that the yokomanuchi can be blocked by raising a forearm, as it will intercept the attacking forearm before the hand gets to land the strike. A haymaker or roundhouse punch can go right past that same block. While the angle of attack is similar, the body mechanics of the arm and the shoulder are different. These differences must be understood. An experienced practitioner understands these nuanced differences. Shomenuchi is an attack that is particularly problematic. The best defense I can give Shomenuchi is that it is a good attack to have raw beginners start with. The reason is that it is an easy attack to see coming and a very easy attack to evade. 
You cannot say of any attack that it never happens in a real fight or ambush because anything can happen. However, attacks on the overhead line are rare and if you do see them, they usually are with a weapon. Even then, they are fairly rare. Swinging attacks are far more common with weapons or empty hands. I believe one reason that Shomenuchi and Yokomenuchi are used so frequently is that both have very distinct and easy to spot telegraphs. A telegraph is a movement or signal of the strike you are about to throw. That makes it easier for Nage to see and recognize the attack and prepare for accordingly. There are many examples of fights starting out of anger which have big telegraph movements to indicate a huge blow is coming. Usually that blow is a big haymaker or overhand swing. If there was one strike that angry people used to start fights, the haymaker would be it. The telegraph of the haymaker is the shoulder dropping back, usually with the eyes widening and a very angry look on the face. As often as that happens, you cannot count on having the gift of a big telegraph that a blow is coming. There are also some very sneaky attacks which are designed to surprise the target so they land without being telegraphed. Which brings up the point. If you are training against attacks which are clearly signaled in advance, how does that prepare you to deal with attacks which are either not telegraphed or falsely signaled via a feint or a fake? With a practice partner, this sort of trickery might be viewed as being uncooperative, which it is. That's what a real attacker might very well try to pull on you, though. If you don't practice good fundamentals and train to deal with such trickery, you will likely fall victim to it. Here is where we get down to what I think are two primary approaches to Aikido and what interests practitioners pursue. They are either interested more in choreography or in practical function. If you look at older film of Aikidoka from back in the 60s and earlier, you see a martial art which is focused on function and not aesthetics. Since that time, Aikido seems to have gradually evolved into a practice which is more focused on having pretty-looking technique with practitioners who are keen to indulge in endless pedantic arguments about technique. Movements, posture, and position are never precise or good enough. Most of these arguments come from those who have no actual fighting experience. This isn't a problem with Aikido alone. I just watched an interview with Ramsey Dewey, and he describes this exact same thing with the boxing community. You can put up a video of boxing sparring or an actual match, and these pundits will point out minute flaws and claim the competitors are idiots and their skills are garbage. A term I believe fits this kind of person is style Nazi. It is someone who is so intent on precise choreography that they have lost sight of function and result. They do not understand the difference between real violence or competition and choreographed fight scenes. I believe the people who are caught up in this are those whose expectation of martial arts come from movies and TV. They admire the cool factor and they believe that good technique should look crisp and clean. Real fighting is not crisp and clean. It is pure chaos and it is messy. How does a style Nazi go about cleaning that mess up and form their practice into something which suits their interests? A number of rules are necessary to make this happen. Rule 1. Only practice one technique at a time. Chaos means anything can happen, which you don't want. If you know the technique you're about to do, you don't have to worry about picking the wrong one for the circumstance. Mistakes aren't cool looking, so the last thing we want is to open the door to making the wrong choice. Rule 2. Make sure your attacker is attacking in a very certain prescribed manner. This is not just a grab or strike to a certain location, but which foot they have to step forward with, what their body posture is, what their shoulder position is, their exact attack angle, and many other variables must all be standardized. Creative variations must be removed. Rule 3. 
Absolutely no feints or misdirections can be used. All warfare is about deception, and deceiving your opponent is not difficult. It urges them to make a mistake. As I said earlier, mistakes are not cool, so the attacker cannot use feints, fakes, twitches, or double pumps to get Nage to make a misstep that would make them lose their cool factor. Rule 4. No setups which are not predetermined. Anyone who has practiced or trained fighting for more than a few sessions learns that the first attack rarely succeeds. For an attack to succeed, you usually need to set up an opponent before you can expect a technique to work on him. Single attacks are much easier to defend against, so no setups. If you do use a setup, it must be announced in advance. Rule 5. Stick to simple attacks. Ever notice how grabs in virtually all Aikido training are only the grab, and then the uke, who is the attacker, doesn't do anything more? They just stop. Grabs do happen in real fights, but they never stop there. They are just the prelude to subsequent attacks. These subsequent attacks happen so quickly, in fact, that the grab and the attack look like they are all one motion. You could consider a combined attack like this to be a complex attack, so none of that unless it is announced in advance. Rule 6. No subsequent attacks. Boxing 101 is the jab-cross combo. It is technically two attacks, one right after the other, in what fighters refer to as a combination. Go one step farther and you have the famous jab-cross-hook combo. As before, do not do any combinations unless announced in advance. Rule 7. Limit the number of attacks and types of attacks. It is easier to learn a limited repertoire, so only use a hand-chosen few. If you are questioned about why others' attacks aren't used, merely say that they are representative of many other kinds of attacks. Rule 8. All attacks must be telegraphed. There's no better example than the attacks of Shomenuchi and Yokomenuchi, which are not only simple attacks, but they include a huge telegraph. Anyone hoping to land a strike on someone would never want to signal ahead of time what attack they were throwing. Fighters spend years removing subtle body movements which serve as tells to their opponent that they are about to strike. Yet in Aikido, Aikidoka spend years training each other to telegraph their strikes. If I never see another demonstration which includes nothing but Shomenuchi attacks, it will be too soon. Rule 9. Make sure Uke makes one attack and then stops. This makes doing technique easier for Nage. Dealing with someone who is moving is much more difficult. I've seen firsthand many times where Aikidoka are quietly scorned or even scolded for either resisting or evading a technique. Far better to never have your technique challenged and train with ragdolls who just flip and roll easily. These are the rules of martial arts choreography. I point these out not to say that martial art training needs to be like a fight club. Far from it. All of these things I listed are good for getting beginners started, kind of like training wheels on a bicycle. The goal is to build comfort level for a student to move past them as quickly as possible. If you are interested in building cool-looking choreography, then you need to stick with these rules. Each of these pose serious problems in preparing someone to deal with the chaos of reality. There are martial arts and martial sports which address ways to build these skills and not just cruise around with training wheels on forever. They can provide valuable training lessons for how to do that. Arguments like this technique or that technique doesn't work have been going on for years and are a main feature of the internet martial arts community. It is a reflection of the low level of understanding of the person making the statement. Every technique works when used in the right circumstance. A good analogy is, a hammer is the right tool when you're dealing with having to pound in a nail. 
However, let's say you grab the head of the hammer and you hit the nail with the handle. Obviously, it won't pound in the nail. If you then proclaim, this tool doesn't work, then you're just an idiot. That is pretty much how a vast majority of the internet martial arts community portrays itself. I'm sad to say that it is also common in the Aikido community as well. I believe this is because there are so few practitioners with practical experience of some kind. Most are more academic martial artists than practical ones. After years and decades following the rules I listed above, there is a thick layer of delusion which is built up over time. There are practitioners with solid experience in the internet martial arts community who make valid comments and criticisms. The problem is they tend to get drowned among the nonsense arguments made by swarms of keyboard warriors. This is difficult to sort out unless you have the experience to spot their wisdom. Enough about the online martial arts community though. Getting back to the subject, false confidence is extremely dangerous to the practitioner. I suppose calling it false confidence is not completely accurate. Confidence in well-practiced choreography is meaningless in the chaos of real violence. There is a great saying, what gets us into trouble is not what we don't know, it's what we know for sure that ain't so. We can know the choreography well, but what happens when you are faced with attacks you never practice against? What happens when you fall for feints and fakes because you're not used to seeing them? What happens when an attacker uses a setup on you and you don't practice against setups? The answer to these is you will likely lose. In real violence, you make one significant mistake and your fight will probably be over and you will be beaten. You don't get a chance for a do-over. When I look back over countless discussions and arguments between Aikidoka and people with experience in real violence, they always seem to come down to the difference between practicing choreography and training to survive violence. These are two drastically different approaches. The criticism about Aikido's validity tends to be around the lack of realism in its training. The critics have a valid point here. Practicing choreography isn't training for violence, even if you do it very rigorously and get tired and sweaty. The problem is that with enough mental gymnastics, practitioners can be led to believe that it is. You can hear this in how many Aikidoka state that self-defense is a benefit, usually a side benefit, of training Aikido. I think that this belief is where a crisis of faith in Aikido sooner or later happens. Many Aikidoka have not had it happen yet. It may very well not happen until you have witnessed or been faced with high-intensity level violence firsthand. Aikidoka who are exposed to the real thing are usually shocked at the experience and describe how different it is from how they were trained. This is what sponsors the crisis of faith. So what is the solution to the problem of Aikido's lack of realism? I think the first step is to realize what each of us wants from our Aikido. If you want to learn complex and beautiful choreography, fantastic. Just realize that that's what you're doing. Let go of any expectation that you are practicing a martial art or learning self-defense. You must be brutally honest with yourself and your students. It's one thing to lie to yourself. That's pretty bad. But in the end, it's your own fate that you're dealing with. However, lying to students about what they will learn is unethical and immoral. Giving students the subtle impression and letting them believe that they are learning practical self-defense when they are not is deceitful. The responsibility for the harm that very well may befall them by having a false confidence built falls squarely on the shoulders of the instructor who built that false confidence. It's always best to be totally honest and transparent with yourself and your students. If you're honest about what you want from your training, you will soon realize if you're in the right group or not. Their interests will either be aligned with yours or they will not.
If they are different, you can voice your interest to see if they are willing to accommodate them. If that doesn't appear to be an option, then you must decide to compromise your interests and stay or move on to a dojo where you learn what you want to learn. Your growth is at stake. Are you worth it? If you find your interest is in understanding and dealing with real violence, then make sure your practice reflects it. Look to move new students and yourself away from the rules I listed above, as they are training crutches. You will probably need them at first, but each one you use indicates how much your training needs to improve to get closer to realism. Instructors must keep this in mind as they compose their classes and develop their students. Your goal is to get your students past these rules as quickly as you can. The longer they use them, the more they become ingrained habits, and the harder they are to let go of. Some instructors may be worried that they are leading their students into a frightening place. It certainly is, but it is your duty to train your students to face violence with confidence and not be crippled with fear. Violence is frightening. The only way to make violence less frightening is to get to know it. The more familiar you are, the less terrifying it is. This builds competence and confidence. It's done in stages and takes time. We cannot get hung up in the training wheels stage. Many Aikidoka have been training for decades and are still in that stage. Don't let yourself be one of them. What are other topics you're interested in hearing covered in this podcast? Please share your ideas in the comments if you're watching this on YouTube, or go to the Facebook group Aikido the Marshall Side and post a comment. You can also support this podcast by donating either through a monthly sponsorship or a single donation of any amount that you like. I always enjoy hearing from listeners of the show, whether through comments or questions. Thank you all for sharing your interest. Enjoy your training.